Hello, and welcome to our interview series, where we periodically speak to fascinating people who can provide insight into the Beatles. Today we are speaking to the fabulous Chris O'Dell, who has had an absolutely brilliant and amazing career, working with some of the world's most famous and incredible bands. Uh, Chris was a total trailblazer, being among the first female tour managers. Do you know if you are the, the first female tour manager? It's never been denied. Um, I think in terms of the kind of concerts we were doing and touring in the 70s, yes, I was. Amazing. And you've had at least three famous songs written about you. George Harrison's Miss Odell, as well as Leon Russell's Pisces Apple Lady and Hummingbird, all of which are phenomenal songs. Um, and, and obviously, you've had some incredibly important uh, friendships with many of the key players that we know about. Um, but I, I think we're we're both especially touched by the relationships that you had with the women that continued over the years, specifically Patty and Maureen, who we would like to talk to you about uh, a little bit later. Um, now, you have written a wonderfully entertaining book about your experiences called Miss Odell. And we here at Another Kind of Mind absolutely loved it. Um, I personally devoured it. Uh, Talia yes. and I talked about that. Like, we couldn't put it down. Yeah. It, it's a great read, a great story, and, and really well told. Yeah, Thank it you. is wonderful. I, last year, I, the, when I first read it the first time, I actually was um, waiting in line for a meet and greet for one of my favorite bands, The Flaming Lips at a concert and it was just so apropos sitting there reading your story while I'm waiting to meet one of my favorite rock stars. <laughs> That's great. Thank right. you very much. Right. It's interesting because there are some people who make, you know, a great deal out of a couple of experiences they've had, but it's just astounding when you read your book, like you were really right in the center of the action. And, and so we're, really, really excited to talk to you today about some of your experiences and observations. And I think that one of the things that we've talked to you about, or I mentioned to you was that we're all women with this podcast, and we're actually trying to talk to more women that were involved with the Beatles, just because we think that women often bring a lot of insight uh, that hasn't been focused on enough, you know? I know certainly that we have learned a lot from your book. You know, we understand a lot more about George and, and Ringo through your book, but also through Patty's book, um, May Pang's book, Cynthia Lennon's books. Like we find these incredibly insightful and we think they haven't been given enough um, emphasis and focus in the, the Beatles fandom. And so we're trying to shine a light on all of them as well. Good for you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Completely. <laughs> Great. Good. So I'm just going to kick it off sort of chronologically. Now, you had your lucky break through Derek Taylor. He, he to me, Derek Taylor is like the exact type of person I would imagine 
working at Apple, like brilliant, charming, kind of crazy, sometimes on LSD, you know, like that kind of a, an amazing person. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about him? Yeah, I, I love Derek. What I, I can look back over my life today and see that there were several, there have been many influential women, but there haven't been, there have been some influential men on a much smaller scale. And he was definitely the first one that came into my life who saw something in me that he, some on some level, he wanted to take along yeah. on a journey. And that's kind of what it was like. We met in L.A. in, um, well, it would have been 1967 or 68. And we just became fast friends. Go, And I have to say, just from the minute I saw him, he just captivated me. And I think he did that with everybody. Men and women just adored him. His his um, command of the language was unbelievable. He he would just you know, and some of it I began later to realize was Liverpool because mm. he Liverpool, and um, you know he had some of the same um, some of the same things that that the Beatles had sense of humor that the Beatles had. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he introduced me to a friend, a, a lady I moved in with called Terry Garr, who was a struggling actress at that time. Right. And I moved in with her, and then he called me a few times from London and from um, New York and asked me if I wanted to come over. And, you know, back in those days, people just didn't jump on airplanes. and. Once I got to London, he, you know, introduced me to at the beginning, and then I kind of was on my own. <laughs> Once you got yourself over there, you were not just given a job. You kind of had to figure out how to make yourself useful. And I was really impressed at your can-do spirit. Like, you figured out how to make yourself indispensable, and it was very impressive. Yeah. It was, Yes. <laughs> I know. I was kind of surprised too. I, well, first of all, he didn't even really. He told me I could, I should stay at the Hilton on Park <laughs> Lane or something. <laughs> so, what what were your first impressions when you got to Apple? Because it's kind of like that. That to me seems like it would have been the coolest place on earth in the summer of 1968. It was, in my opinion, it was the coolest place on earth. You know, it's like I always think funny that the word Apple has twice in our history in my generation been huge big things big deals mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. everybody wanted to be a part of and certainly apple core limited was um they were on wigmore street when i first got there 95 wigmore street so it was just a regular old office building in the west end and uh the first thing i saw was the picture um of alistair what was his name i've forgotten now but anyway uh, the picture of the guy that had all these instruments around. Oh, it, Alistair Taylor. Yeah. Exactly, thank you. It wasn't like if I had walked into Savile Row for the first time, because there were many other businesses in that building. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So it was. It, it didn't have that feel like, oh, I'm entering the hall of doors of. And I had to go up to like, I don't remember, the third or fourth floor. It was, you know, I walked in and the reception room was huge and empty and and I sort of sat there and waited for Derek to come in, I think, <laughs> something like that. So, but inside I was going, I was like, it was unbelievable. It was probably like going to Disneyland when you're 
<laughs> I can wow. imagine that. I actually wanted to ask, like, what was the general feel or mood or vibe of Apple in those days? It sounds like it's a really creative, incredible place to be in 1968. Yeah, it had a lot going on. This is still at Wigmore Street. It changed somewhat when we got to Savile Row because it, we had the whole building and there was just so much going on. But the, the, initially, the days that I arrived in May of 68, um, I think uh, Ringo was doing a movie, that movie he did with Peter Sellers. He was off on location. Um, and actually, that first day I met, well, John and Yoko were sitting in the reception area after I came out once from Derek's office. But everything was very casual. You know, there was just a lot of feeling of you could run into anybody and nobody right. was going to stop you, which wasn't very much like how we had always seen the, at least I had always seen the Beatles as being kind of um, really hard to get to and always protected. And here they were just sitting around. So, you know, they were doing the clothing store at that point and, um, yeah, they were making records. I mean, there was just a lot of stuff that was going on. We're going to go into, ask you detailed questions about the various Beatles, especially George and Ringo. But um, what were your impressions of meeting them? Because like, you give the most detail about meeting George in your book, but and you say that you met, I think you met Paul first. Um, did you say that? Paul um, came into the offices. Uh, John and Yoko were in the in the reception area. And what did you think of them, just seeing them there? Well, first of all, who knew who Yoko was? I mean, I didn't oh, know. Yeah, who. that's interesting. He was still married to Cynthia at that point. So wow. I saw a Japanese girl. I had no clue who she was or what was going on. And they were just seated, seated huddled together in the reception area. I went into Derek's office and while, you know, Derek, we talked and then he kind of got on with things. And at one point I could hear a voice in the room next door, which later became my office. Um, and, and Derek said, Oh, Paul's here. Internally. I think probably my heart was beating a million miles <laughs> because I had nothing <laughs> wall separating me from two of the Beatles and I was a fan. So it was kind of, wow. It was almost unbelievable that yeah. this was happening. It was almost like, when a, am I dreaming? What's going on? <laughs> so when Derek came back, I assumed he was with Paul, but in fact, he was with John. And he oh. introduced me to John and Neil. And what did you think of John when you um, saw him? Well, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't mm -hmm. know. Out of I'm trying to think. I think I just it was I, it was hard to have an exact moment because yeah. there was just too much going on. It was just like wow, okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. And then and I think I was probably more into Paul than I was to John. So you know, if I think back to that 20 year old mind, I knew Paul was next door. Yeah. <laughs> what did you think when you met Paul? Did you think like he looked like you expected him to, or was he charming and? Um, both they, he was exceedingly charming. I mean, John's just who he is, you know, and all I remember, it seems like he just had this really big furry coat on. So mm. that kind of 
that image stays in my mind about him. But Paul was just, you know, he was just really charming. And, you know, he acted like, oh, I'm so glad to meet you, you know, <laughs> very much his style. So, but he was also very much into Apple at that time, more than the other three. I mean, on it, in terms of its day-to-day working, he was right there. And it turned out he was there every day. Right. Did you have quite a bit to do with Paul at that time? At the beginning, I had more to do with him than anyone, actually, because he was in Apple every day, and they were getting ready to do the White Album. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I asked him, can I come to the studio? You know, in the meantime, I was finding temporary jobs to do, like relieve the switchboard operator. If the secretaries need to break, I'd go sit and answer their phones or help them with something. Yeah. on permanent staff at that point. But somehow, you know, I just got up the nerve and said, can I come to the studio? And he <laughs> said, oh. And also, by this time, he was saying to me every time he'd come in, are you still here? Are you looking for a job? And I think that's what did it. When he said, what are you doing? You're looking for work? And I, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. Why didn't anyone just give you a job? Yeah, I didn't understand it. So that was my first sort of, encounter with him. And then um, because he was at Apple a lot and I was, I'd been in the studio by this time and I had been going out with a friend of John's from childhood. I had met him at the studio and we were just kind of going out. So we would go over to the studio a lot when the Beatles were recording. And then sometimes we'd go back to Paul's house. At that time he was with um, Frankie Schwartz. Franny Schwartz. Franny. Okay. Yeah. He was was he already done with Jane Asher? Had they already broken up? Yes, they had broken up at that point. And so, you know, one morning he and I rode the bus together to Apple to work. Oh, what was the story behind that? That's so cool. Well, I was with I was I went back after the um they were recording in Abbey Road and I was with Pete Shotton. And um they Paul said, Let's go back to our house and John and Yoko were staying there at Paul's Cavendish Avenue house. So all six of us went back and stayed the night. Oh, but wow. I so I had to get up and go to work. So he and I took the bus. Oh, wow. That's interesting. So you mentioned in your book that you he was dating Francie, but you thought that he wasn't that committed to the relationship, that it was just casual, I think. Well, absolutely. I spent a lot of time going over, because also I was living in her flat in Kings Road. So she she was at Apple, and we were the only two Americans, American girls there. So we became friendly. Through her, I would go over to Cavendish quite a lot. And um, one day I was over there, and he just plain said it out loud. He just said, what would you do if you wanted to get rid of somebody? <laughs> no. Oh, no. Like, really? I mean, do you want me to tell her? Is this what we're, we're getting to? And um, <laughs> by the time I w- was sent away to Ireland for my work permit, and when I came back, she was gone. So I guess he dealt with it. Well, we actually have some other, uh, we've done some other interviews with people who have just said that he, she was really persistent with him and that he, she was maybe convenient at the time. I never had any connection with her again. My memory of her was that, you know, I didn't know anyone. So here was an American girl at Apple every day. She did 
she definitely came in and pushed her way in. Yeah. And, you know, back then what I did recognize immediately is, you know, the Americans are, were just so much more assertive than the English were, than the Brits were. And so I looked to a lot of the secretaries like I was just pushy and, you know, I was the pushy American. Mm-hmm. And I think she she did that too, but she wasn't as sensitive to the criticism as I was. So, mm. she, but I never really understood that relationship. I don't think it was too important. <laughs> no, no. Uh, like, did you see a difference between when Linda showed up, the way he treated Linda, versus the way that he treated Francie? Oh my God, it was like night and day. And in the meantime, I thought since Francie was gone, I'd finally get my chance at him. Yeah. Yeah. Get off your bottle, go down and see your apron. You know what to do, Lordy, when you tell her how bad it's been. Say you want to get away to the English countryside. curious, Chris, um, because so many books and impressions and memoirs don't really go into great detail about Paul and, you know, their first impressions of him. And we were sort of curious about what was it that made you have that crush on him, other than the fact that he was a Beatle, other than the fact that he was famous. Like, what about him was so interesting? He thrived on what he was doing. He's, he, he's very passionate about things. And so Apple, he was completely passionate about at that time. He's very charming. He's good looking. Um, and, you know, he just, he was just nice. He was just easy to get to. Let me put it that way. When you really sat down and looked at it, it was a lot easier to talk to Paul than it was to the others. He was just, he would listen and he would, like one night we were out for dinner with I was with my friend uh, Leslie Cavendish, who's a, who was the hairdresser for them. Mm-hmm. I was out with him and Paul and Francie at that time. And we, we came back to drop Paul off. We were in Leslie's Mini. We came to drop Paul off in front of Cavendish. And we sat there and talked for a really long time about things that, we, that I noticed that weren't happening at Apple and changes and he talked about what he wanted to happen the vision he had so that was kind of how he was he you know you could sit and have that kind of a conversation with him in fact what really amazed me is when he first showed up with linda it was at a james uh, taylor's recording session and um at trident studios and we were in the cafe we were in a, a chinese restaurant across the street all of us having something to eat as a break and he walked in with her and I'm like oh my god this guy has the weirdest taste (laughs) why did you think that Francie you know she was okay but she was no beauty I thought Jane Asher was yeah Uh, but Linda you know she's in this dungy old raincoat and it's like god dang (laughs) (laughs) that's actually interesting because like when we look back at like linda for example 
you know, just a, as people knowing the history, we're like, well, Linda was from a really well-to-do family, sophisticated family. She was a journalist. You know, she looks pretty to us in photos. But it seems like everybody was quite surprised about her at the time, you know? So it's interesting to hear that that was your impression, too, was that oh, she was she flashy. She didn't bother with makeup. And, I mean, <clears throat> she was as natural as anyone I knew at that time. We, um, she kind of grabbed onto me because we were, I'm from Tucson and she loves Tucson. She went to school here, mm -hmm. the university. So we started, we immediately found that out the first night that we both were crazy about Tucson. Mm -hmm. so that kind of brought us together. Plus then, of course, I was working for Jane Asher's brother. Mm. <laughs> I think she was trying to figure out if that was if that was over, kind of keeping tabs on that one at the same time. So we spent a lot of time together during that time, and you know, she just she was just who she was. Did you like her? Um, I liked her. I mean, there were there was a period of time when I first got to know her, and I really liked her. But I think what happened is that. Um, as she got more and more with Paul, she became more and more like Paul. That happens. <laughs> I've seen yeah. more than once. And so, you know, and then she got thrown into a, a situation and I just saw a change in her. And then I really didn't have the same kind of relationship with her. What do you mean more specifically the the change? Is it all about the, the fight with Klein and her family? And, you know, is that the kind of thing you're talking about or... Um, no, I don't think it had anything to do with that. I think it was that, I mean, it may have to her, it didn't seem to me it had anything to do with it, but probably to her it did, you know, because it, there was also a point where, you know, they sort of had these different camps, but nobody knew it. I mean, only the women, I think, thought they were in different camps. Um so Yoko say, said to her secretaries when I was living with them that I needed to leave because I was from George's camp. Yeah. So I think that's sort of what happened. And, um, and she and Paul, you know, they were, he's, he's very enveloping. So when you're talking about like you liked her when she initially came and she was who she was, and then she sort of became a little bit more, I guess more like him or more just in, invested in him or was she protective? I think more protective. I think at that point, and I, and she had to be protective, <laughs> you know, she was with probably one of the most, well, he wasn't really eligible after a while, but you know, one of the best looking, most famous men in the world at that time. Yeah. So I think she got protective. Yeah. I mean, I certainly don't envy her position, actually. It, it, you know, it, I imagine there was tons of women who hit on him. Uh, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm absolutely positive. Well, that's too bad you didn't date him, though. I, God knows I tried. I asked him if he would teach me how to drive in England. Yeah. And he was, and? Going, he was going to give me, he said, sure, come over and I'll give you driving lessons. That's weird, huh? And, <laughs> and she... <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. flirtatious with you um 
I think he's flirtatious with everybody to a degree. I mean, not particularly. It's just that he he can be so one-on-one that you can interpret it how you like. Someone once told me that during that period of time, I got a, a bunch of flowers, a bouquet of flowers from Paul. But the now I don't even know if this is true. But the other girls in the office threw it away, and I never knew it until this guy told me. <laughs> oh, that's terrible! That you had. Oh, they're so jealous. Yeah, <gasps> uh, there was there was a little bit of that too. But but actually, thank God, I'm really still good friends with the, some of the people who work, the women who work there, and we hold no grudges. But. There was certainly, I don't blame them. I can see it. Here, Waltz is in this American chick and, you know, she just pushes her way into everything. She's suddenly at the studios. And these girls had been around, a lot of them, since um, Brian Epstein. And they said we weren't even allowed to go to parties they were at. You came, I guess, when he broke up with, he was just breaking up with Jane. Was that considered, was that big gossip then? When I first got there, a, a couple weeks or a week or so after I got there and I had met Leslie, he took me to a party. I think it was at um, Dave Clark's house. So this was my first outing into the London social world of rock and roll. Oh, that's pretty cool. It was pretty cool. And we went to Dave Clark's house and, and Paul was there with Jane. I remember that. Now, when I just in the first month or so I was there. Okay, so you clearly did know Paul to some extent, maybe not as well as the others, but you did know him. I enjoyed him very much and um, and spent a lot of good time with him in the early days of my being there. And as I said, as he and Linda got more together, he moved. And then, of course, the Klein thing happened. He moved further away from Apple. Right. And so he, but he seemed fairly crazy about Linda pretty quickly? I would say so. Yeah, I mean, I, I I was still stunned for some of it. It was like, really? What is it with her? But you know what? Um, they seem to have done really well together for a long time. Yeah. You know what's really interesting, Chris, is I find that like somebody like Linda, there are a lot of parallels between kind of what happened with you and your career and her and hers, where it, it's a woman from the States who goes over to England, <laughs> who has that assertiveness. Um, of course, Linda was all around the world doing her photography, and she's kind of a trailblazer in her own way, the first woman to get a photograph on the cover of Rolling Stone. And her photos are amazing. And so it's interesting that at the time, people were a little bit boggled by like, well, why is he going for this person? But in hindsight, when you look back, you sort of see like, oh, okay, I see it. She was another artistic, creative equal. and a trailblazer and then you're also kind of a bit of a trailblazer too so like in your own way right so it's just so interesting that you guys were kind of around the same time doing a really similar thing well back then there weren't that many american people i mean people just didn't come that much you know i actually saw linda i went to lyndon paul's house in the country um, in the after I got married. So it was probably around 80, 86, 87. And Patty and I, with Patty, with that time was still Patty Clapton, I think. And we went to, um, to their house and spent the day there because Patty and I were doing a book interviewing women. I had an idea to do a book about the women behind the men. Oh, great. 
Patty said she wouldn't do the interviews, but she would take the photos. And I'm like, okay, win-win. Mm-hmm. And so we did we interviewed about 13 women. And we went out, I asked her one day if we could come out because I hadn't seen them for a while. And so we did, we spent the day out there and we had a really nice time with them. And by that time they had been, um, you know, they had kind of were doing their own thing. They had each had their own studio with their paintings and their, all the different things they were into and just a really natural life in a lot of ways. They seem to have worked out a way of living beyond the fame, you know, but, but each doing their own artistic thing. It's, it's, it's really interesting. He seems to be that way though, in his marriages, maybe excluding the second one. Um, but it seems like he's done the same in this one. He seemed, he, I think he likes married life. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. He likes a partner. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of partners, so what was, what was your impression of John and Yoko? I'm, I'm a little bit curious about what you thought of John individually and what you, your impressions of them as a couple. Once, once you got over the shock, I, I guess, of seeing John and Yoko. Well, I, I always liked John. I do like John a lot, in fact. Um, but Yoko... At that time, they were just coming out as a couple. And so I got involved in that unsuspectingly by being places where they were being seen for the first time by the press. Mm. The Apple boutique opening um, show they had where the press came. And I was I just happened to be sitting at the table where right. I was with Derek and they all came and sat down there and... And then um, the, the op- we went to the opening of a play, and I went along with them to that. And it was, you know, all that was in the very, very beginning. She was frightening. I found her pretty frightening. I didn't warm up to her at all. Mm-hmm. I can't remember ever feeling kind of warmed up to her. And, he, and, and they were so involved in each other. And she had this, this gallery show, show going, getting ready to do. And, there was they just were so unto them into themselves and then they kind of left and went away and and got you know kind of did their own thing and then they came back to apple when we were on Savile row and had the office downstairs at one point which was the main office off the reception room that was their office for a while and he was always open and responsive and everything she wasn't she mm. was just she protected him. Um, so, you know, it made it hard to get to him in a way. Is that her job? You know, like was, you know, did he need protection or was that, was she just like Linda pr- protective, possessive um, of him? It's hard to say. I mean, she may have felt he needed that protection. Mm. I didn't think he was the kind of guy that did. I thought John could certainly take care of himself. I mean, he was from Liverpool. Mm. He to do that. He's smart as hell. And, you know, but so I don't know. I, I didn't get inside enough to really understand that. But um, later when he was with May Pang and we were all in L.A. at one time, then we did spend a lot of time together. And, you know, he was everybody called it the lost his lost weekend or something but actually he was very focused he was working i mean there were drugs but he wasn't drinking very much i don't even know if he was doing drugs back then he was just really focused on getting harry nielsen's album done yeah and um i know before that 
he got went a little crazy, but uh, you know, I found him. I mean, they all the Liverpool sense of humor can bite, hmm. <laughs> and they all could do that. John was particularly good at it because he just was that kind of a person, and he was so smart. Yeah, it's interesting because you know we read May Pang's book, and she she makes the point that Yoko. And John were really good at crafting narratives, you know, and so we know that part of the long weekend was, you know, what we know about it was crafted afterwards as sort of like, well, we're going to spin it this way. But it sounds like when we delve into the interviews from the time, the contemporaneous information, that it it was very positive in some ways. Uh, I thought it was there was some really good times we had during that time, and I lived at the beach house with them um, in Santa Monica almost the whole time they were there. And but you know, John was relaxed. I mean, you know, he would lay in the. Uh, they were right on the beach, but there was a kind of enclosed yard, and he would lay out in the sun, and you know, just, he just seemed very relaxed, and and you know. I don't know. I just saw a different side of him at that time. I always hear that from people who are around him at the time that he was happier. You know, did he? Did you get the impression that he was happy during that time? Um, I think yeah, I got the impression he was happy. And then I went to their place in New York that they had, and he seemed really happy. I mean, he seemed to be enjoying himself. However, Yoko. Now you have to realize that I get some of my information through May. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. On who you're talking to, yeah. May, and it's her perspective. But you know, I think that, and I do know this from the beach house that Yoko was constantly on the phone, constantly keeping in touch. Right, and so, we know that we know that she asked Paul to get in touch, right, with John and, and to pass on some messages to John. Well, Paul did come to the beach house one day. What was that like? Um, I think we, all of us sort of, the other, John and Ringo and Paul went off sort of by themselves. And Linda went with them, of course. Um, but, and I don't remember if May did, but they just kind of, we'd, everybody just kind of went off and did their own thing. And they just all, they sat around because it had been a pretty difficult time for them. It was after the Apple stuff. And yep. so it was a big deal for, you know, for Paul to be coming out. And I think they were really, I don't know, my impression was everybody was kind of excited about the idea of them sitting down together. Well, actually, that that leads me to another question, because we're going through the breakup. You know, we call it our breakup series. And we're sort of deconstructing because we think there was a lot of narratives that were created in the immediate aftermath of the breakup that remain today that are not necessarily true. Um, so we're trying to go back and reconstruct timelines and look at contemporaneous interviews before some of the spin happened in the early 70s. Part of our hypothesis is the breakup of the Beatles partly had to do with the breakdown of their partnership. Well, I think you're right. That's certainly one aspect of it. I mean, I, actually, I was living at George's house when the day that Paul announced in the paper he was leaving the Beatles. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, I felt that pretty close, closely. Uh, but during the time at Apple, we knew all this stuff was going on, 
But at the same time, they were recording. And part of that time, they were in the studio downstairs recording. So we were still seeing them every day and seeing things go on kind of as normal. I mean, I do remember that when Ringo left the band, I remember when... It, but that was a big deal? Oh, that was the first one to leave the band. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that was like a serious thing. People did take it seriously. Um, yeah, they went and talked, Paul went and talked him out of it. Yeah. And then I, when I was there, John quit the band. And then Paul went and talked him out of it. <laughs> you know how you told that story about John being a little bit hurt when he went to the studio and George right. and Ringo were playing with Leon? Right. That John did not want to participate because he was not invited. When we look at some of John's behavior from 68, 69, John seems a little hurt by Paul. And we're not quite sure why, but we think that Paul, Paul seems to have hurt John in some ways. You know, I think it's important to remember that during some of that time, John was doing heroin. And, um, you know, I think that had to affect the way he thought and, of course, the way he was acting. So there was a lot of, I mean, there's insecurity in any group of people. Yeah. There's always insecurity. Um, Ringo says it out loud, you know, that he thought he wasn't good enough to play with them, a good enough drummer. And he never, he didn't write songs. George didn't get, wrote songs, but he couldn't get them on the album. So Patty in your book makes this point that Paul's quit the Beatles and yet he talked everyone else into coming back. But when we look at the history of it, John did make say that he wanted to quit the Beatles in September of 69. He makes this divorce statement. Right. And it seems like Paul did take John seriously. We think when we are looking back at the history, we think that John may have been, that may have been a power play. That may not have, he may not have been as serious as potentially Paul took him just based on some other interviews that he gets gives later where he seems to be hedging. But the fact that George is very surprised by Paul's announcement or it seems to be taken off guard suggests to me anyways that maybe George didn't take John as seriously that you know that if George was still thinking there was a Beatles at that time that maybe Paul took John too seriously in quitting the Beatles. Well, I remember the day that happened, that it came out that John said he wanted to divorce, because I believe it came out in the newspapers then. And I remember that day, and everybody was in a tizzy. Mm. John's quitting the Beatles. But the idea was, we just need to go talk to him and get it sorted out. It was that kind of thing. Oh, that's oh. interesting. And, you know, by th at that point, there was still a lot of Beatles support around. There was still Peter Brown, Neil Aspinall. You know, all the people who had been there, Mal Evans. When Paul quit, there wasn't that same thing there. You know, there wasn't that huge Apple organization anymore. There was the whole split up with the Klein thing. And I I, I personally think that Paul just got tired of it. Yeah. In your book, you mentioned that once Paul does announce this, that George gets into a bit of a funk. I think yes, it there were the newspapers spread all over the kitchen table when I came in and it was a long table. Mm. And 
and then shortly thereafter, John came over. And as I said in the book, it was the first time I'd ever seen John without Yoko. Yeah, so, and what did that say to you, the fact that he came over and spoke with George on the It was serious, and it was between them that it didn't involve anyone else. talk to us about um, uh, George's personality a little bit, because we have found it really instructive, the way that you talk about there's really three sides to George. Um, but George is always a mystery to me. And I think Talia and I have both talked about the fact that we got a lot of insight from your book, understanding that there was these really three different sides to him. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, yeah, he was complex in 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 a different way. First of all, he really, by the time I got to know him really well in those early days, he really was sick of the Beatles. He was tired of the fame. He was so torn between, and I also can relate to this, that he was so torn between his spiritual beliefs and then reality. It was kind of like, how can I, you know, I don't want to be famous. Why didn't, why why is this my karma that I have to do this? You know, there was a lot of, it was a very tough one for him. And, and I think it was one he worked on to conquer all his life. Um, that, you know, he was given these great gifts, which he realized, you know, that the, the, the position he'd been put in in life was very advantageous in so many ways. But he didn't, he resented it at the same time. So that was a real conflict for him. So there was this Liverpool side of him that was, you know, just like, again, that, that biting humor that can come out and, and hiss at you at any time. Mm. That could be there out of nowhere. I mean, it was true of all of them, but his I saw more often. Um, and, and yet he could be very, very spiritual. I mean, he, Thank God. I was just thinking the other day that I am so happy that I had him and the Krishnas in my life because whatever I'm going through in my life, my spiritual, the spiritual part of me takes over and I look at it with gratitude. I mean, he had a huge impact on me. I was young enough that it would have happened. And so I think for him, that was that was the hard part, the struggle in life. He also um, was really flirtatious and cheated a lot. Mm. And um, that was kind of, that was a hard one to look at, you know. I mean, and the thing is, he would come across as though he didn't care that something had happened, like when he and Patty divorced, he came in her, I think it bothered me more than it did him. Um, <laughs> it came across like, you know, well, okay, that's what happened. Mm. But in fact, I know that deep down the feelings were a lot deeper, but he dealt with it, processed it in his own way. He didn't sit and talk about it. So right. he was mysterious. So there seems to, you mentioned there's th three sides to him. There's sort of the, the fun, you know, the, the George that will drink and, you know, 
party and that is fun. And then there's this other side that was a little bit more judgmental or I don't know what to call that one, bitter um, yeah. side. And then there was the, the spiritual side. Right. Um, I, I'm wondering whether or not, like, was the spirituality trying to reconcile these two sides or was it dealing with the fame or was it just something that was innate within him? Um, well, he was a good Catholic. I mean, oh, he was. Yeah, he grew up Catholic. So he had religion early on. Um, I never met it. I know his, I met his father more than a few times, but I knew Harry pretty well, but I didn't know his mother, but I think he, his mother had a lot of a, a impact on who he was. And mm. um, so he, he came into it with a lot of spiritual beliefs. Plus he got involved with the Beatles. He was pretty young. I mean, yeah. He was the youngest one. Yep. And I think that, you know, if we'd been thrown into it at 17 or 18, however old it was, by the time he started really getting into being part of the Beatles, when they started getting big, it was hard for, I mean, that's pretty weird to have happened to you at that time. <laughs> I think he felt trapped in a lot of ways, trapped by his own karma. I do remember listening to an interview with him later in life, and he did mention there was a duality to it for him where he accepted that it really opened a lot of doors for him and was a vehicle towards great things that he really appreciated, but he also had a really hard time dealing with the crowds of people, you know, being an introvert and dealing with the, you know, the attention and the fame that maybe he didn't always want all the time. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, when he was fun though, he was really fun. <laughs> I mean, he could play like the rest of us and, you know, we could stay up all night and have a ball. A lot yeah. of it involved drugs and alcohol. So when you took, when he took that out of his life, then he wasn't so much fun anymore. <laughs> and then he became a little bit too serious for the likes of us mm. particularly. So it, you know, but, but the spiritual side of him, yes, he was definitely, um, he was torn. He was very torn by all of it. And look what happened. Then on top of that, I was thinking just last night that I was in a retreat, a Catholic retreat, the, the day that I read the paper that he'd been stabbed. Oh my and God. I was thinking, wow, you know, this is just so weird that yeah. it would happen to him. You know, yes. And what probably really actually killed him in the end. So, um, Oh, my God. Your portrayal of George is really is really interesting. He's he's in one way very sexy and likable and enjoyable in the book. You know, you, you sort of get the sense of he was a good friend and a great person to have in your life. But part of me, because I liked Patty so much in your book, did not like George because I oh funny I I felt like he he wasn't frankly great to her. Um. No, I don't think he's been, frankly, great to anyone in a marriage, if, you know, in the two marriages he's had. I think one lasted longer, but, you know, I think that it was, um, I, and when I say he was like a brother, I really mean that. I mean, yeah. I, he felt like a brother to me and he felt like a sister. So when they went through that, um, I was pissed off. I was mad at Eric. <laughs> you know, to me, he was the problem more than. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I was but mad. They, 
But okay, so can can we just talk about this for a second? Because you know, George is George is having issues with Patty, like from basically the time that you you know you came onto the scene. This is something that Tali and I discussed. Is we thought like was their relationship even sort of there by the time you first met them? Because he's um, having an affairs and she seems into it. Well, first of all, by this time they'd grown apart. When I, when I, I mean, first of all, can you imagine your husband bringing home a woman and saying she's going to live with us? <laughs> I mean, that yeah. happened to Patty and me. Yeah, I, I didn't know. I assumed. I mean, I'd met her, but I didn't know her. Right. I assumed that he had set this all up with her and. He might have given her a call, but she sure she wasn't prepared for it. I'll put it that way. Oh and, my goodness! You know, just in a way, it was a wonderful thing because by that time things were beginning to break down for them. Yeah. And so it gave her. He had Terry Doran to kind of take away attention from where he was at, and she had me. So it kind yes. of made it a little bit easier. But. You know, I think there was a period of time, as I have heard from Patty, that they were really, really close and deeply in love. And I think they just grew apart. She loved, she loved, and still does to socialize. That was never his thing. I mean, we would like have to beg him to go out into London to go for dinner and meet people. He just hated that. Mm. He fed off of it. So. Some of those things were coming up, and and I think at that point they probably had gone as far as they could go. Yes, yeah, that was the sort of sense that we got. You know, that's that's why I I jumped on the fact that you said that you were angry with Eric because it seemed like Patty and George just had differences. And also, I was really angry. This is just me personally reading it. I was so angry at George for his announcement to Ringo and Maureen and in front of Patty that he was in love with Maureen. I mean, that, that wasn't very nice. That was bad. Yeah. Three more. That was bad. And, and God knows why. I mean, it put everybody in the most difficult position and who knows why, you know, we wondered about that, whether or not he, that was him getting back at Patty or some passive aggressive thing at Ringo or, in Patty's book, which I also read kind of in tandem with yours, Eric said to George, hey, man, I love your wife. I'm in love with your wife at a party. And George was really upset by that in the moment and was like, well, are you going to go home with him or me? And Patty chooses George. So it's just kind of interesting that a little while later, he chooses to kind of drop the bomb on Ringo and Patty, like in the exact same fashion that Eric did to him some years earlier. There was a little bit of time between that because I was there for all of it. And, <laughs> and the reason, well, I'm a, I'm a, I was angry at Eric because I thought he would like me. That's why I kept coming over, I thought. <laughs> no, actually, I was mad at him because I liked them together. They were my family to a degree. Mm-hmm. I was mad at him for that. And honestly, things were so messed up back then. People were with people they shouldn't have been with. Everybody was like going crazy. It was almost like someone had, like they'd broken out somehow. And But this is the way I always said it, that back in those days, they'd been so protected and they were so enclosed by this group of trusted people, friends and trusted people, that they 
didn't want to venture too far because it might get them in trouble. In other words, they stayed with what they knew. Right. It was and, very incestuous. Yeah. And I think that's what happened then. But nobody, we weren't smart enough or old enough to kind of go, what the hell are we doing? The the Maureen-George relationship is interesting. I mean, you know, you actually bring Maureen to life in a really interesting way. I loved Maureen. I thought she was great. But she was scary, too. Why was she scary? Oh, before you got to know, oh, because she's got that Liverpool way about her. She would just, mm. just you know, she'd tell you the truth. Mm. She and John were alike in that respect. So, you know, that can be a little off-putting when you first meet people. But, but yes. in fact, in the end, I loved it. And she was such a good friend. Yeah, she sounds really, I really liked Maureen reading your book. I don't know, did they just go through a period where they felt like they you know because you make it clear that maureen maintains that ringo was the love of her life but i guess she had this period where she and they were under some spell or something i think if you really look at the history during that period of time i i always said that who was it that said if you can remember the 60s you weren't there uh-huh. uh well I, I never i don't buy that I remember the 60s. If you can remember the 70s, you weren't there. Seems like the 70s are way more out of control. Way more out of control. I mean, when I came over, when I went to London and came into that crowd, they, I did see that they were doing speed, like they had tablets of speed. And they were smoking pot and they were drinking. And the Beatles had played with LSD, but that was it. That was mm. the, I mean, they may have done more, but that was all that I saw in that whole group, really, that was prominent. But by the 70s, then we got cocaine and, you know, different kind of pills and all, all this stuff going on. And it just, just changed everything completely. And I think that had a lot to do with a lot of the problems that happened in the marriages during that time. Everything that I heard during the during those years when I was working at Apple had to make it from the ground floor to the fourth floor. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I didn't always get uh, the best place was the press office, but I didn't always get all the information. Well, especially the fact that you were working for uh, Peter Asher, who, you know, one of the episodes that we'd like to do is delving a little bit more into the Ashers because we think they're interesting just in terms of their influence on the Beatles in terms of bringing in some of the connections to London and, you know, Peter's connection to, you know, Indica and the International Times. When you were working with him, was he still connected to that or had he sort of taken a step outside of that? He was still partners in that when I first went to work for him. Was he still interested in it or because, you know, it sounds like he made a move out of that. Uh, not, not like at, as in that he actually got out of it, but that he might have focused his attention elsewhere. Well, he found James. <laughs> and, yes. you know, he was the head of A&R, so he was listening to all the 
new groups. I mean, he got very involved in that. And yeah. with with Apple, I think he just had less time to um, to be involved in the things he was in before. And then, of course, he didn't. He left after what was it, in the seventy in seventy. He le- yeah seventy. He left for L.A. But um, he was very cultured. They're a very cultured family and appreciation of, of music and art. I mean, that very much is a part of what he grew up with. He was very unlike them. Very <laughs> unlike, unlike them? Unlike them, yes. But, but do you think that, you know, we think that through Jane and through living with the Ashers, that there was an impact on Paul who would have brought it into the Beatles. Do oh, you think definitely. that that's true? Oh, definitely. Were, uh, was, was Peter closer to Paul or did they have any kind of special relationship? Um, I think he was closer to Paul at that time. Um, yes. In fact, remember I said that Paul came over to the studio when, when we were, when James was recording his album, you know, they would, they kept in touch. They, they were friendlier, but they didn't hang out together as far as I knew. We're, we're kind of surprised that once Paul and Jane broke up, that it seems like it was okay between Peter and Paul. I, I mean, we don't know, but it's kind any- of their great unknown mystery in the fandom because a lot of people, like I've heard conversations, people speculating on like, well, why was Peter still so cool with Paul after he broke up with his sister? You know, I don't know. It, 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 I never saw anything that would interfered with that and knowing peter peter's very good at like you know putting stuff into their to their rightful place and right emotions rule you know Mm. and my guess is he would have just said okay that's between them and this is our relationship I, i i think he wouldn't have he wouldn't have gotten emotionally involved in something like that well, even Jane seems a little no nonsense from the little bit that we can read of her. She seems very, very much like that too. So oh, maybe that was, maybe that was their upbringing. Stiff upper lip. Yes. Yes. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about Ringo? Because you obviously, you know, developed a, a more intimate or a deeper knowledge of, of Ringo in the 70s. And, and, and loved your take of him. Um, oh, he was so, he was so funny. I mean, was he, he? Really, he really was sweet. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He was like nice. And he was another, like the first time we really talked, I think I wrote about it in the book and said it was at Patty's birthday party at Friar Park when they all came before we had furniture there. And he sat to, talking to me on the floor because there were no seats. Mm-hmm. And, um, was talking about Leon, which to me at that point was, you know, that was the dearest subject he could have talked about. Mm-hmm. And 
um, he just was so nice. Every you know the way he he talked and and it was easy to be with him. He was kind of just an easy guy. And of course, Maureen. That was the time that Maureen was like, "We have to go." Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then called Patty the next day and said, "Who's that girl?" Right. In fact,、um, you know, we became really like friends. And I think in the turmoil of everything that was going on during that period of time with George and Maureen and Patty and Eric and everything, it was almost at that point. I think it, people were just looking for some sort of comfort, and the most comfortable places were with the people you knew. So when he came to、uh, the states to、um, to spend some time in L.A. I, I was real comfortable for him to be with, and you know we we had a relationship. I would say it wasn't anything of great import, but it was well, it was important in terms of what people bring into your life. But it was nothing that you know. I I, I hope that that came across that it was this was just bad timing and wrong people, <laughs> you know that. Yeah. I mean, I certainly didn't blame you. I thought, you know, that you you were a very good friend to Maureen and felt guilty. But in some ways, I, I totally understood why you guys would have gotten together. You know, there was, you know, she was involved in something else. She told you to take care of Ringo. Yeah, we did have a really good time together, and you know, I, I don't see him anymore really too much, but.、Um, Yeah, for many years we we've been we've stayed we've gone through a lot together as friends. I'll put it that way.、Um, were Ringo and George really good friends? They were good friends. They were probably closer to than any of the. I mean, they were the two closest probably. And the interesting thing is, is like the the Paul John relationship too. I mean, they definitely were not did not seem especially close in the seventies. But you you hear them when you know we've looked in detail at all of their. Interviews and they do. Paul and John talk about each other constantly in the seventies. Well,、uh, yeah, I do kind of remember that, and I, I think that、uh, look, I think they had to be very good friends. They, you know, they. I didn't meet them when they were connected at the hip. Yeah, because they had their, you know, Yoko was there by the time I got there, but、um, you know, I think they were really close friends, and it's kind of like. You know, you you. It's sad when that changes, and there was a lot of animosity in the early seventies. Anyway, the opposite of love is not hate; it's indifference. And I don't think those two were ever indifferent about one another. No, I don't think so. Indifference hurts. <laughs> yes, indifference yes, hurts. It does, and it's interesting because, like, the books almost portray John like that, like he was indifferent, and yet when we read. You know, as Talia said, we see a lot of emotion one way or the other. He's either really upset or really, you know, back interested in it again. But there isn't. I think that's a bit of a fallacy. I think he was very passionate and had a lot of very deep feelings, but didn't go there or show them too much because it probably was not a safe thing to do. Right you know, to to allow himself to break into that. I mean, go back to his mother. You know, and you you already get an idea of what he what went on for him inside his his certainly in those years inside his heart. You know. Yes, absolutely. 
you know, and Paul doesn't seem to be the best at that kind of thing either, from what we can tell, you know, that he may not be as emotionally open as some would portray him, you know? Well, I think, I don't know how they were before, but I think if you've been uh, quoted and cited and gossiped about, you get very careful about what you show. I found him to be, um, I, I, I mean, I was able to see emotion in him when I was with him alone, you know, at his house when I went to see him and Linda. I thought Paul was very much there emotionally, you know, but there's only, you know, they're so guarded. You have to be. In my own relationship with him, I found I could, you could, he was emotionally available. You could talk about stuff, you know? Mm. I mean, I'll tell you, this is what's so funny. I think about this often because I live back in Tucson. And when I was at their house that night, they were t- telling Patty and I about that they had a house in Tucson. They bought this ranch. As it turned out, it was a ranch I'd been to before because it, I went to school, high school with the guy whose parents owned it. But, wow. um, but Linda said, Chris, don't tell anyone about it. Don't tell anyone about our house in Tucson. We don't want anyone to know because it's the place where we can really get away. Yeah. So I went back to Tucson like a year later. And all I hear on the radio is there's been a Paul McCartney sighting. <laughs> oh, no. See, to me, that's like saying you're not in touch with everything. The reality is not totally there. Actually, I was sort of thinking about the way that he guards himself. I mean, when I went out to their house with Patty that time, we went with Linda to pick up the kids at school. And they didn't want anyone to know where they lived because the people in that village treated them normally. And that was really important to them, that they keep everything normal. And I think he, that's a, something he attempts to do, is that same thing, is try to keep it as normal as possible. When I went to their house that day, I had invited them to my wedding, which had happened probably months before that. I, I can't remember if I had my son by then. I, and I married an English aristocrat and yes. was married where his family lived. His mother lived at Leeds Castle. And I invited, I thought, well, I'm just going to invite them. I invited yeah. and Barbara. They came um, and Derek and Paul and Linda. And I never heard from them. But when I got there that day, Linda said, oh, Chris, I know we got your wedding invitation, but, you know, we just don't go in for all that kind of Duke and Duchess stuff. And I went, Democratic <laughs> stuff. And I went, oh, okay. But then, since then, he's become Sir. And mm-hmm. she, I just saw a picture today in something with her and Paul and Princess Diana, which had to have been from around the same time. And I went, really? Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, they are full of shit sometimes. <laughs> but it's unfortunate that they didn't at least get back to you. I thought that was very sweet that you invited them. Yes. And, and it's it's so nice how, you know, again, you make Patty out to be really quite lovely in the book. Like, she just seems like a, a genuinely delightful person. The person that actually comes out probably the worst in your book is Eric Clapton. That's what yes. everybody says. I tell you, I hear that all the time, and I think, oh, shoot. Well, <laughs> you know, I didn't really mean to go after him, but to be honest, he wasn't a very nice person. 
He's probably fine. No. I've not seen him since he's been fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and the thing is, you don't make him out to be a terrible person. You make him out to be possessive of Patty and you're defensive of her. Like we laughed at when you were driving out and gave him the finger. You know? oh. We're like, good for you. Oh, that was my happy moment. <laughs> we kind of felt like that too. Good. <laughs> Male rock stars in the 60s and 70s were never told no about anything. Nobody pushed back. And like this egotistical person who was used to getting his way got told. And I just like the salty side of me was like, yes. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing about him is, you know, I was telling Talia that in some ways, okay, so Eric comes off as a little bit of a brat. Um, and, and possessive of, of Patty. Oh, Patty and Eric had a passionate relationship. Yeah. Um, if anything, it was probably drugs and alcohol that, that really hurt that marriage mm. more than anything. Um, mm-hmm. But it was a more passionate, that's for sure, more passionate. But Patty and George had a soul connection. Mm. I could that's feel, nice. And she felt, and I think, you know, before he died, he went to visit her and see if she was okay and everything. And there was a soul connection there. Mm, that's very sweet. I don't think that yeah. was true with Eric. <laughs> yeah. The soul was there. Just my opinion. That's- yeah. Yeah, well, you know what? You observed it. You certainly were there and have, have the right to actually have an opinion, unlike a lot of people, you know? So we respect your observations. But it's interesting that that in some ways the indifference is hard, but I, I get, and that did come through, that, that Patty and George did have this kind of like underlying love, but just as a reader who liked Patty, I was kind of like, come on, George. You know, that that, that would have been difficult for me, I think. So I, I understood why Patty was attracted to well, Eric's passion. George had a, a controlling part of himself too. Um, Men. <laughs> yes. When will those clouds all Okay, so we've had a question. You work for both the Stones and the Beatles. How would you define sort of the what the vibe of the different groups? You, I mean, I do get a sense when you're reading, but could you talk about that? It was like night and day. And, you know, I was not a huge Rolling Stone fan. I liked them and I bought their music um, Mm -hmm. where I had been a Beatles fan. So, I mean, I went in with a bias anyway. But, I mean, I adored Mick during that period of time. I just adored him. I thought he was so cute. He was like a little boy, but with Mm. a really good business mind. Charlie, probably one of the nicest men in the whole world, you know. Well, Keith is really nice. I mean, that really threw me. I didn't know for a long time. I, you know, it didn't take that long when I worked for them to realize what a nice person he was. Well, actually, in my opinion, Keith comes off better in your book than Mick does. Uh, Because he's more down to earth. Hmm. You know, Mick is not down to earth. He's floating up there somewhere. At least he was. That's interesting. Did did the Beatles and like you talk about there being a little bit of competition with you know that you tell that story about Keith um, commenting about a Rolling Stone comment about George was there always the competition between the two bands? I think it was meant to be there um, at the time, 
but they also worked together on a lot of stuff. So yeah. it wasn't like oh them against us. I mean, they were the two yes. famous bands in England for sure. So I mean, they did a lot together. But interestingly enough, when I came off the Stones tour, I flew to Friar Park and to stay with Patty and George while I recuperated. <laughs> and, um, I was just raving about Keith to George, and it was almost like I was letting him know about someone he didn't really know very well. <laughs> One of the things in your book that surprised us was that so George sided with Klein, with John and Ringo and Klein, but you know when when you were talking about Klein cleaning house. George was a little bit defiant of Klein, and we were we were surprised because that was early days of his relationship with Klein. That already he was he seemed to be chafing a little bit in your book. I think that um, George and Ringo went with John on on Klein because I don't think they wanted Paul's father in law to be running things. Yeah, there was already a control thing. So yeah. I think it wasn't like, oh, we really would rather have Klein. I think then when they got around Klein, they saw what he was like. And, um, you know, it, yeah, George, well, I, I guess you're referring to when he called and told me that I was going to get fired. <laughs> but it was, yeah. it was for the better. I mean, he really meant that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that that's that's interesting that it's too bad that they didn't have another option you know on the table although Paul always makes the point that John was John and Yoko were enamored with Klein which they seem to have been if you look at their art, their interviews from the time they they are there's this crazy interview that they give in 1971 where they're just like the things they say about Klein are hilarious. They think he's like brilliant and an orphan and genius and like they couldn't be bigger fans, you know, before getting into a lawsuit with him a, a year later. Yeah. Well, they, they were more New York. To, just to continue with it, with the, the line of questions about Klein, you know, in the books, you know, this is the issue with, with the books. They're all told by, most of them are written by journalists, like ex-Rolling Stone journalists. or And they, they seem to be obsessed with, you know, the alpha in the group. And we're, you know, we kind of look at the Beatles and think it's, it's very fluid. Um, they all had strong personalities. They all, you know, had roles within the Beatles. But they always make the point that, well, John was the, the clear alpha and the other two were just following him. And the way that you've talked about it is, you know, a little bit different that they're just, they didn't, Paul was already too controlling and they didn't want his father-in-law. That makes sense to me. That makes the most sense to me because at that point, then it meant he was in charge of everything. He had total control over it in a way. So they didn't want that. I mean, I think that's the only reason they went with Klein, to be honest. But they, they the books kind of portray John as being this great leader and alpha in charge of everything in 68 and 69. And we just don't, you know, we've seen the, the videos and the, 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 the film footage of let it be and get back. And yeah, I don't have that impression. You didn't have that impression. That doesn't strike me as a truism for what I, what I witnessed. Right. Right. It, it doesn't seem to play out, but I think that's something that maybe they like a story that they like, you know, that, that John was was always the leader. Yeah, 
it, that, those things will go on and on and on and people will keep saying it. But And maybe at one point he was, but during that time he wasn't. Um, yeah, he interesting. Was, I do love that you got to go on the roof and watch them play the rooftop concert. Um, now that was fun. <laughs> yeah, were you were you amazed at how good they were when they were on the roof? Actually, I was sort of distracted by just the whole thing because there were people down on the street. I was more interested in what people were thinking. I had this mm. they were going to go on the roof and everyone in London was going to hear them. <laughs> And in fact, yeah. I could only hear them for probably a, a maybe two blocks. Yeah. Because they had little, these little lamps. So I was kind of busy watching everybody um, on the street, starting to look up, like, where is it coming from? Oh, yeah. You know, but actually, considering how cold it was, it is amazing how well they did. It was freezing. Oh, it looks freezing when you look at it. It just looks painful. Yeah. But they sound pretty amazing, actually. Yeah, they do. It's a miracle. Yeah, they were still a kickin' live band, which, like, I can see why Paul was sort of pushing for them to go back to that. Yep. They were amazing. No more. You fortunately got to experience them, and so thank you so, so much for the time. Um, we loved it. We will, you know, want to encourage everybody to read your book. When the book was coming out, um, they changed... A, a new editor came in, publisher came in, in the publishing company and wanted to change the title or add to the title because they didn't feel Miss Odell was enough, which was probably true. And so they added my long days and my long days and long nights with the Beatles, the Stones, Bob Dylan and Eric Clapton. And I said, uh-uh, you have to add, and the women they loved. Because <laughs> mm, yeah. I did not want it to be that way. I wanted, I thought the women were as important as the men in that. Yeah, absolutely. And we're kind of, I'm sad that you didn't get to do the book of the women interviews. Well, I still have them. Oh, oh good. <laughs> Treasure. I hope, yeah, I hope you put it out. But we'll see. I don't know. I just look at oh, it. that would be amazing. Sing. Really and truly, the women were the heart of your book. It was the relationship with Patty and with Maureen that, to me, really stand out. But those are the real relationships. It's, you know, it's hard to have that kind of a relationship with a guy where you're yeah. hanging out with them. I mean, I hung out with them, but probably because I was with the women, you know? Yeah. So It was such a pleasure to converse with you. It was so much fun, and I really appreciate your time with us, Chris. It was amazing. Sometimes I get impatient, but she cooled me without ways, and she comes so sweet and softly, my And had you heard that I thought my life had ended, and I found. She gets me where I live I give her all I have to give I'm talking about that hummingbird
little and I love well too much for words to 